Okay, well, that was great. Great discussion last hour. And, uh, you know, I just want to summarize that we spent a great deal of time looking historically at the men that we're going to be reading about in the Perkei vote. And we culminated that discussion on Hillel himself, the last president of the Sanhedrin that was involved with a pair, a zugot. And uh, again, uh, the two things I I want you to bring from the uh, last class, the last hour, is that Hillel died probably in about 20 of the common era. His antagonist, if you will, the uh, Av Beit Din Shammai died in about 30 of the common era. And as soon as he died, the master began his ministry as soon as the Zagot were gone. Hillel's son, Shimon, took over as the president of the Sanhedrin, not Shammai's son. And then uh, Gamaliel, uh, Gamaliel, or Gamliel in Hebrew, uh, took over um, after him. So we looked at Gamliel and his relationship with Paul and both of them leading back to Hillel and these seven methods of interpreting the scripture. So we'll, uh, my goal here is that we'll move quickly through these and we'll be able to write in my never airing black pen, uh, we'll write down an English translation of all of these weird Hebrew terms that I'm not sure are actually even correct. Um, I mean, you can you know you do a search on the internet for Hillel's seven rules, and you know you're you're going to get some different Hebrew here and there. I can't figure out why we've got Binyan or Binyav. Who knows? You know. So we'll we're going to kind of fake through the Hebrew and come up with uh, what we've got here. Call the Comer. Um, we do that one all the time. So uh, what's what is that one? Light and heavy. Light and heavy. Now, where did I tell you that Halal got these? From where did he get these? The From the scriptures. So I should be able to give you a biblical example for every single one. All right? So let's take a look. Um, everybody's got a Bible? Ready? Are we ready? We've got. Uh, are you going to do it from memory? Okay, good. That's impressive. All right, I'm going to go around the room. Proverbs 11, Jeremiah 12, John 7, Matthew 12. You can do the entire book of Hebrews. Oh, you have a Bible? You have no Bible. No Bible. How come your butt's still on the couch and you're not going over there to get a Bible? No, that's all right. Did you say 11 or 12? Proverbs. Yeah. 11? 11. How is it? Hillel came up with his seven rules from the Apostolic Oh, he didn't. Okay. What? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Talk about a prophet in his own day. No, um, no. I'm going to give you examples of these that Paul used because Paul was Hillel's, Gamaliel's student. Okay? So um, uh, we're going to look at the entire book of Hebrews tonight, but... Uh, Okay, we'll just cut it down. So Hebrews, you do chapters 2 and 9. Pete, you do chapters 10 and 11. All right, so we're looking for the light and heavy. Or uh, actually, uh, I don't like light and heavy as much to memorize or learn this one as I do how much more. I just think that's a better phrase. And would you mind if I, if I just change that here? Can we do that? I just want to, I want to be able to memorize these because I'm really teaching me, not you. I can't tell the difference between eisegetical and exegetical anyway. How much more? All right. So, my, my desire is that we're going to read these scriptures in sequence very quickly so that we catch it, so we understand it. So it's, right? Um, so let's not... Uh, belabor things. Proverbs 11.31 If the tzaddik are recompensed on Haaretz, that is the earth, much more the rasha and the chotzer, the, uh, chote, the sinner. That's great. 
All right. I think we should use a different version than that so that we can get a better understanding next time. All right. Jeremiah 12, 5, first half of that verse. That's good. That's it right there, right? If, if you're getting worn out when you're running with guys, what's going to happen when you run with the horses? Gee whiz, come on. Right? John 7, 23. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moshe should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whole on the Sabbath day? See? So, you know, if, if, if this is a good thing, well, how much, how much better is it? I'm not just keeping the law, but I healed the guy. Come on, this is great, right? Uh, Matthew 12, 11 and 12. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sharp teeth that falls into the pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable a person is than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There you go. You got the sheep, falls in a hole, you're going to pick them out. How much, how much more important is a person than a sheep? You know, the PETA people hate that verse. <laughs> All right. Hebrews 2, 2 and 3. Now, I want to make a note here that the entire book of Hebrews uses nothing but this, which is one of the reasons why, one, one of, of many reasons that you should not think that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. One of the reasons, among many, is it's all filled with this. And Paul uses this, he just never uses it as much as this author does. Because the whole book is that way. It's, I mean, it's just one big call of a comer. In that, in that one letter. In that one, in the letter of the Hebrews, it's the giveaway that it's not. Yeah. Because he mixes it up. He's using all seven of these things. And this is just so overwhelmingly here that it's, it's like someone sat down with this intention in mind. And it just doesn't seem like Paul. Although, sometimes it's hard to understand. Therefore, we think it must be Paul. Uh, at least I do, you know. Um, so Hebrews, we got two of them. Hebrews, what did I, what did I give you? Hebrews 2, 2 and 3, right. Okay, so if, if, if the angels speak and it's a big deal, how much more if we've heard it from the Lord? We've also got Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. I have a better translation of the Proverbs one if you'd like that as well. I'll come back to you. I just had thought it offered. 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's a, that's a great one, eh? Right? If, if the ashes of a cow can cleanse your flesh, how much more does the, does the blood of Yeshua cleanse your conscience? Unbelievable. It's a, it's, it's a great one. All right? Uh, 10, 28, and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Really? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Wow. The Spirit of grace? So... You not only are in trouble in this case, but how much more in the other case? Chapter 11, verse 9 and verse 25. This is speaking of Abraham. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of, with him of the same promise. 25. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. That's the, the sentence. Really? Read it anyway. Choosing 
rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay. Yeah, it's speaking about that. Yeah. All right, well, well, we'll leave out the last one then. But you get the idea. I'm sure I could exegete something. <laughs> That's right. I, I, let's go to the soda and grab that bad boy, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right, so how much more? So, <laughs> That's right, that was a soda deal. Wait, what verse number is that? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, what verse number? Well, the verse number divided by three. That's right. Always right. Seven is a biblical number. That's right. All right. So were those just a couple of Yeah, those were just examples. Those are just examples. I was just thinking of a couple in Matthew where God feeds the birds. How much more does he care for you? Yeah. And 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 that's and that's remez, yes. right? Yes. That's remez. So you're jumping to these examples where you've seen this particular rule in place. Now that's what Hillel did. As he read through the scriptures, he saw these seven rules. All right. So how much more? How much more? Yeah. Well, how much more? There's six more. So here we go. All right. Gezerah Shavah. I guess. Um, this one is an equivalence of expression. Um, an example here would be the Nazarite. All right? So let me see if I can get... Uh, you're going to... Okay, here we go. We're good. I want you to give me 1 Samuel 1.10. 1 Samuel 1.10. And Jonathan, you give me Judges 13.5. And we'll see if we can get an equivalence of expression here. While they're looking that up... Yes. Calva Homer. Um, maybe I'm missing something, but how does that help me interpret scripture? It doesn't. It, it just says that, device? yes, this is a literary device that he sees or saw as a rule in scripture that you can identify. Okay. That, that the scriptures use this method to teach us. Okay. Alright? And we've got this next one to teach us that we can learn like, you can learn from, from the how much more deal by, by you, you understand it better because God has used this literary device. In this one, this equivalence of expression, we're going to see that we know something about Samuel that's not mentioned in the text, but because of the equivalence of the expression that's used, we'll be able to deduce something from him. All right? So, um, yes, sir? the two scriptural references you gave? The two for this that I've got for you are 1 Samuel 1.10 and Jude 13.5. I'm sorry, Judges 13.5. See, did I say Jude? Yeah, you'd be at the wrong side of the book. Okay, what do you got? 1 Samuel 1.10. All right, uh, just because I think it's... Don't, don't even go there, man. I just don't have time for it. Please. <laughs> and she was in bitterness of Nephesh and davened unto Hashem and wept greatly. English version is, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That can't be the one I was looking for. Yeah, maybe I've got it out of the Hebrew Bible. Hold on. It's 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Okay. So, what do we know about... Who, who's, who's speaking, by the way? Hannah. Hannah is speaking, and to whom is she speaking? To God. And what is she asking for? A son. She's asking for a son. So, by the way, for your notes, it's 1 Samuel 1, 11, not 1, 10. Um... What does she, I think she what did she just made a vow? And what did she say? No razor. No razor will ever touch his head. Oh, oh now you that's not what the scripture says, Ken. So we've got to employ Hillel's rule number two in order to come to that conclusion. Judges chapter um, thirteen verse five. When you shall conceive and give birth to a son, a razor shall not come upon his head for the lad shall be a Nazarite of God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Who's 
being spoken to. Manoach's wife, right? About Shimshon. And he was going to be a Nazarite. And one of the declaring features is that no razor shall touch his head. So this is called the equivalence of expression or equal expression. So what Hillel is saying is, or trying to teach us, is that we can look at one passage and see an expression and see that same expression used elsewhere and draw a conclusion that flushes out the text for us. Ken did it naturally. He knew right away, wait a minute, Samuel was a Nazarite. How does he know he's a Nazarite? Because he did the remez. He remembered that expression was used when we got the definition. And there we go. Yes? One of the best ones is Moses in reference to the Torah. Give me an example. Well, when the Master is referring to Moses the prophets in Psalms, he's not just referring to Moses as the Torah, the prophets as the Nebim, and the Psalms as the largest book of yep. the Pentateuch. Now, I don't disagree with you, but according to Hillel's rule, you've got to give me the equivalent expression where Moses is defined as the lawgiver. See what I mean? I don't disagree with you, but if we want to get this equivalent expression, I need two expressions. Well, I need the other side. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay? So we got that one? Can you think of another one? I'm just trying to catch my answers for Ken. <laughs> Can you hand me a stool back there? Tell me about the. Um, that's exactly right, son. Yeah. Yeah. The, according to the Talmud, they've looked at the scriptures and they came up with a formula and said if you're going to make a vow based on the scripture, based on Hillel's second rule, We've got equivalent expressions. If your expression is equivalent to a part of, or actually two parts minimum, of the Nazarite vow, that is that you will abstain from either cutting your hair or the eating of the the vine, the fruit of the vine, and there's a time frame given, then, by definition, according to Hillel's rule number two, you are making a Nazarite vow. And that's exactly what the master did in his last Seder. He said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we've got the two pieces in there. We've got the limitation or the abstention, and we've got the time frame. But does that really count since there, uh, there isn't any second expression? Well, the, well, yeah, with the definition of the Nazarite itself. Well, that's not going to work in the Samuel case, though. You actually have to go back to Judges to find the equivalent expression. Uh, to get the equivalent expression, I did, yes. Well, in the, in the Talmud, I'm just saying that the Talmud derived that from his rule based on that. Take the technical side. That's fine. He's saying that it doesn't it doesn't match up exactly. The masters doesn't match up exactly with Hillel's rule number two because it actually matches up with the Talmud statement because you don't have an equivalent expression in the scripture. In the Samuel case, there was the verse in Samuel that said he won't shave his head, but then there was the equivalent expression judges about the razor, meaning he'll be in Nazareth. In numbers. Right, but I'm just saying that in this example, 
again, was not mean to the other text because that wasn't Right. We don't have an equivalent expression. We, he's not disagreeing that the master was taking a Nazarite vow. But the reason we know that is because the Talmud said this is what that means. And, of course, if the Talmud said it, it was already in place by then. Here we go. I love the, I love the ones that you think I might have. Hang on one second. The uh, three uh, enigmatic passages regarding separation. Yes, yes. The, uh, the boiling of the kid. Yeah, if the, the vowels are chalev, meaning fat, as opposed to chalav, meaning milk, then we have a Gezer uh, Shavah uh, reference in Leviticus that says you shall not kill the mother of the calf. You are exactly right. I don't like that one. <laughs> and then he went to live in a city called Netzeret. Uh, that was spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene or a Nazarene. So, okay. So there is, he is this because he is from here. Does, does that fit the same formula? Well, I'm looking for that expression. I think that's where Pete was going. We've got to have the expression the same in two different places so that we can gain insight into one passage from another. So where we've got a phrase in one that's used in the other, and we've got more information in the other, we can apply that extra information back to the first. Isaiah 11.1? You need Isaiah 11.1 to say that someone that comes from this town will be, someone, someone like this will be called a, a branch. or that's there. expanded definition here Yeah. Well, not exactly. I think I think the key here is is I mean to be in the in a purest sense is to have the exact phrase some some expression there. Now now it's a slam dunk, and that's where halal I think was coming from in its purest sense. But yeah, the analogy thing I think we get later a little later. Yeah, I don't think they'd. I don't think they'd be using the same phrase then, and that's. I, I know that that's not what Halal was saying. Yeah, yeah. Halal was Halal was saying if you've got two expressions that are the same, that one will that one will yes that one will give you more insight into the other. That's as simple as that. Just, I have a question. As far as the Nazarite vow is concerned, there also was not partaking of strong drink. Well, Fruit of the vine. Right. Well, John the Baptist, would he be a Nazarite? He was. Yes. And then Paul, when he was asked to shave his head, Yes. Um, did he take upon the Nazarite vow? Because I remember hearing that after the vow is completed, you're to shave your head and burn. Yeah, well, you, you, start, by, start. you start by shaving. Okay. You end by shaving the head, right? So the length of the hair is the length of the vow. Right. And it was normally done on the pilgrimage festivals. So you'd start on one, and you'd finish on one. That's why he was rushing to get back by that festival. Um, but, yeah, I, I, think, I think the thing that most of professional Christendom doesn't realize is that when it says that he had taken a vow, there's only one in the scripture. There's not another kind of vow. There's only the Nazarite vow. In all of the Torah, that's the only one that's described. So, you know, this, this whole thing, well, I'm swearing off tobacco products for Lent. Uh, you know, it's always a great thing to do, I think. I'm vowing against, yeah, it doesn't cut it. All right. Does that help? Yeah, chocolate cake. Yeah, chocolate cake. All right. Um, let me see if I got a, it. Let's, we won't read this out, but uh, if you look at Hebrews 3.6 to Hebrews 4.13, I think you'll find that uh, ah, maybe in the Torah where it says and uh, the, the city in which you will place his name and then where Shlomo says this is where you placed your name that's exactly right yeah, that's, that's exactly right that's an equivalent deal and, and that's yeah wow that's out of the park man that's great you don't have the references holy cow that was great <laughs> Okay, um, Hebrews three six to four thirteen. You've got Paul comparing Psalm ninety five and Genesis two. 
or, or, or whoever the writer is. It's a good point. Thank you, son. You've got the writer of Hebrews comparing Psalm 95 and Genesis 2 and using the words works and day and today and the day and all of that. And Paul is concluding, or the writer of Hebrews is concluding, because of these equal expressions, he comes up with this 6,000 years man will reign and 1,000 years uh, Shabbat. Oh, right, right. That's, uh, what was the Hebrew reference? Uh, 3.6 to 4.13. Yeah. So... I mean, you just take that for what it's worth. You've got uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. You've got Genesis 2, 2. And you look at Hayom in all of those, and Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, is just going to town and doing this equal expression thing. Because, I mean, Hayom is easy to find all over the place, actually. All right. We move on to the next one, or we'll never get done. This, uh, this third one... I don't even know how to pronounce it. Binyan av mikatuv echad is actually building a family from one. Building a family from a single text. Right? Oh no, no, no! This, this is this is what Hillel is saying is Hillel is saying that this is found um, uh, around the scriptures that uh, a principle is found a consideration found in one can apply to them all. So if you find the one and they all have a principle found in several passages, and you find an aspect of the principle in one, it will apply to all those principles. And that makes sense. Um, So let's take a look. We'll go around again. Hebrews 9, uh, 20. Exodus 24, 8. Those should be the same. Uh, Hebrews 9, 11 to 22. Pete. Johnny, give me the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. All right, Ken, you got, uh, what do you got? Hebrews 9, 20. Now, the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting from Exodus 24, I think, so you should have pretty much the same thing that Greg's got. So what do you got in Hebrews 9, 20? This is the blood of the covenant God has enjoined upon you. What do you got? Hmm. All right, so we've got this blood deal that the Lord is doing. So Hebrews 9, what did, what did I give you? 9, 11 to 22? Yeah, read me the whole deal, because Paul is, is coming up with an argument now, and he's building a family from this one principle that the blood has been applied to the people. But when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he made once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God,
This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, the law, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Did you hear a lot of blood? We got the blood. We got the blood. Now, what we got from that blood is one concept about blood that he mentions in Hebrews 9, which is also in Exodus 24, and he works that whole blood thing, that one reference about blood that we know to be true, and he ties it to the covenant. But he couldn't do that unless he's got another one that he's building the family from, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we've got the blood of the covenant, and the writer of Hebrews uses that to tie it back to this new covenant. He's built a family from one verse about the blood, or one concept about the blood. Further, maybe to Ezekiel, what, 36? Talking about the covenant as well, and the circumcision of the heart. But there's no blood there. Okay. Right? But, you know, um, I think we could... Oh, yeah, yeah, no question about it. So just the concept here is what I'm trying to show you, that you know, he's building a, a family of precepts or concepts from one expression. Um, it's not, it's the covenant. Their verse talks about blood and covenant. So the writer of Hebrews draws... The verse he's building from is Exodus Correct. Which is blood and covenant. And the new covenant, of course, is mentioned in Jeremiah 31. So the writer of Hebrews, right? The writer of Hebrews has taken this one verse that marries blood and covenant together, and says, "Well, blood of bulls and goats. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. New covenant. Bam! I got blood and covenant, and I'm bringing it." Well, in and of, I, I know what Paul is saying. Or the writer of Hebrews. Right, right. Not Paul, but whoever of Hebrews is saying, I'm just having a little trouble uh, figuring out how it works with point three. Hillel is simply trying to say that using one thing that the, titru- that the Scripture teaches about something, you can build a family or, or if you will, a theology it from it. It's like a whole household of people. The only thing that brought them here together was one Yeah, blood. exactly. Thematic, blood and covenant. Study. It's exactly what it is, yeah. Now, uh, one, one example and one kind of dramatic example of this that comes to mind is, I think, I think it sort of fits. Okay. Is, uh, the, the snake handlers. As weird as that sounds, right? They've taken a they've taken a verse. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know the snake handlers, aren't you? No. You don't know this. You know, no, I don't know any personally. (laughs) Personally. Yeah, I know. That they will grab hold of vipers and they won't be they won't be harmed. And Paul getting out of the after the shipwreck. It's a very small group of Protestant. Christians uh, in primarily from the charismatic camp. Um, uh, originally in, in Eastern Tennessee, 
Yeah, I was going to say it's the mountain mode. And they would, they took that verse, right, put it on the fridge, built, built a little doctrine around it. Right? So they pass out, they in their services, they will pass, they will handle poisonous snakes, rattlesnakes, whatever. In the service. In the service. Yes. And if the snake bites you and you die, well, you were a sinner. Because oh, if you're a believer... It won't harm you. Won't I, have harm you. I have a romance. Yeah. Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. <laughs> Small congregation. Probably close to dying out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh man. Oh my goodness. That is something. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't quite, obviously, it's taken out of its context. You bet. You bet. Which is white. Yeah. Well, I think what, I think you raise a good point, and I think it's probably why Pete's confused. The concept here is not to say. The concept here is. The concept here is not to say that if we, if we find one verse, we can build a doctrine from it. That's not what Hillel is saying. Hillel is saying that the Scripture does this. That the writers of the Scripture did it. And he only had the Tanakh. So he's saying that the writer, a prophet, for example, would take one concept taught and build on it. Well, Paul was a master at doing that. I think the antithesis of this third rule is proof texting. Sort of would be the antithesis of this rule. Taking one text and making a family from that. I mean, family out of thin air. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're not pulling it from the scripture, that's the key. So, because this is, this is the difference between what, what we're trying to mentally do now and what Hoel was saying. Hillel was not saying you can build doctrines from one verse. Hillel was saying this writer in the scripture built this from one verse. He built, the writer of scripture built a family from this one concept, from this one verse. You get it? It's not, yeah, it's not. This guy said, we ought to do this. Where did he get it? He got it from here. You know, with the snake on it. It's a perfect example. That, that's not what Hillel is saying. Hillel is only looking at rules that are in the scriptures. He's not drawing anything out. He's just saying, the way this is written, it comes from here. So I, was, I would say, I mean, it's more of a categorization of like a, a, uh, almost like a, a building a shelf of references that talk about a particular keyword, yeah. here they are. Yes. So bring them out. So it's not you're not building anything; you're grouping. Yeah. yeah. Or, or building a family of of references, if you will, right? From this one, I think the one in Hebrews is great because <clears throat> you've got the writer of Hebrews in chapter nine, verse twenty, taking Exodus and building on it and saying, "Blood covenant, you bet." We do have a covenant built on this blood, and there it is right in Jeremiah. Question. Um, so this one, it seems that in this rule, that that is definitively the parent. In this one. The offspring of the family. Yes, one. in this one. And then, I would right. think that that parent, could, uh, another qualification would be that that parent would have to be the Torah. Right? We wouldn't start in the Nevi'im. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I would definitely agree that the base for this would need to be a Torah statement. And of course, the, I, I would suggest, I can't prove it, it would take a lifetime, but I would suggest that Hillel is saying exactly the same thing. And isn't it interesting that his student's student, presumably, used Exodus 24 in order to flesh out Hebrews chapter 9. Right? That's, that's the thing. The next one, Binyav Av Mishin Ketuvim, or whatever that means, or however you say it, is building a family from two or more. Hence, Ketuvim writings, right? A 
The principle is established by relating two texts together, two or more. The principle can then be applied to other passages. For example, Leviticus 19, 35, and 36. I'll read it to you. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in measures of length, of weight, or quantity. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall you have. Why? I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, from Leviticus 19, we see that we should not be unrighteous in our judgment by having unequal measures, right? By use of the fourth rule of Hillel, we recognize that the provision of equal weights and measures also applies to how we judge people and their actions. Because we can apply these across to other things. And he's finding these things in Scripture. So you can go and see how we should judge one another. And the Master was great at flushing that out and saying, you know, why, why are you being this way with people? Um, this, this fourth one here, um, where you're using more than one and comparing them, is exactly why. Number four, and I'll circle it, is what What keeps the Torah relevant from generation to generation. Because this number four, Hillel's fourth rule, is what allows us to apply it today. Paul did the same thing. When I say the ox, what do you think of if I'm talking about Paul? When you say the ox, he didn't write that about the ox for the sake of the ox, did he? That's what Paul says. Right. He's talking about a workman being worthy of his hire and you need to pay somebody who's teaching you and so forth. So this is a, is a great thing to keep it um, relevant. All right? Questions on that? Make sense? Kalal Ufarat, I guess. This is uh, general and particular. General and particular. Probably need to take another picture of that, Johnny, after uh, after we get the black in there, right? Okay, so here's a perfect example. What does Genesis 1 teach me? Generalized, and then we see later on in chapter 2, we've got the particular, right? Right, so that's that's the deal. So, So Hillel is saying that the scripture does this, that we can see a general and a particular, and we can apply them back. We can see the particular and then apply the particular back to the passage that describes the general. Man and woman, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in uh, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 14, we've got, uh, Deuteronomy 16, we've got, what's in Deuteronomy 16? Yeah. Right? It's the, it's the three pilgrimage feasts. But in Leviticus 23, it's all of them. Seven, eight, whatever you want to call it, whatever way you're numbering them these days, right? But that tells you what they are. But you can go to other passages, like in Leviticus, and it will tell you how to keep them. Now, didn't we just read about, or we're about to read about, on Sukkot? First we got 14 bulls, and then the next day we got 13 bulls, and then we got 12 bulls. Um, take, for instance, the Sabbath in Exodus 20. Yeah. I know that later... As we're reading the door, there's passages, you know, like in 31, Exodus 31, where it says, and, okay, this is the sign this of the covenant, all right? And then there are other passages that go on to explain, okay, this is, you know, what you should and should not do on the Sabbath and mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah. they're, they're all kind of 
tying back to that general term well, Sabbath for Well, I think the general one of you shall keep the Sabbath. Right. You've got the particulars, and there's probably two or three, maybe four, in the Torah, and right. then you've got one or two in the in the prophets, right? Sure. But what you're saying is even that you take it a step further back and say Sabbath is the specific to a sign of the covenant type thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's this is a good one. I love this. Uh, it to me, this is this is the master of Ramez. This is being the cross reference queen, right? This is where, I mean, you just did it, right? I can stand up here in in virtually any Sunday school class in America and say, "Tell me what's in Leviticus 23," and I get blank stares. All right, well, tell me what's in Deuteronomy 16. That one's easier. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. Why? Because they're not reading that part of the Bible. They're not. <laughs> that's right. Because they're not people. They're not people of the book. Right. That's the that's the problem. So we should be able to do this above all. I think number five is my favorite. Yeah, the people of the letters. That's right. In more ways than one. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now this. This. Number six, six is the number of man. Six is normally not a good number. I just forgot what the English is. So I'm, I'm very cautious of number six, an analogy from another passage. Yeah. I'm cautious because when people make analogies, they tend to spiritualize, and I hate that. So let me give you an example, and then we'll talk about it. So let's start with our example. We're going to start with you, Pete. Um, I think we have what may be an apparent contradiction in the Scripture. Can this be? I don't know. Exodus 25, 22, son. Ken, I want you to give me Leviticus 1. One and Greg, you be prepared with numbers seven eighty nine. It's the last verse in chapter seven, one of the longest chapters in the Torah. Number seven. Yeah, seven eighty nine. All right. So give me Leviticus one one. The Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Out of the tabernacle. Of the congregation. What 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 was your version? Thank you. Yeah, King James is really throwing me here. Yeah, I speak, yeah, that was a giveaway. Yeah. Can you can you move from spake to give me something else? Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. All right. So where did he speak to him from? From the tent of meeting, Peter. Verse 22, there I will meet with you, and from above the cover, from between the two cherubim, cherubim. that are on the ark of the testimony, ah. I will speak with you about all that I will give you as commandment for the people of Israel. So, from where is God speaking? Between the two cherubim. From between the two cherubim. Not in the tent of meeting. That sounded like a number five. It sounds like a number five. Because the two cherubim are in the tent of are they really? Well, at least they should which, which, Really? Hold on, wait, which tent are we talking about? It's in the... We're talking well, about the same tent. tent. It didn't say tabernacle. That's a different word than tent of meeting. Yeah, well, this is before that. I'm saying the Karavim are in Mishkan. They are in the Mishkan. You didn't use the word Mishkan. Chronologically, reading it in English... Well, flip it to Hebrew. It's not Mishkan. Ah, exactly. Can you read? What's your point? Yeah, it appears to be, but this is God saying, "I will speak." When I make all that stuff, yeah, yeah. So, what is Numbers? What does seven eighty nine say? So, 
So regardless of the timing, which you know because of these kinds of passages, we know that he did speak to him from the tent of meeting. Yes, it is general, and we get a particular, but they appear to, to say two different things. It was number 789. So it appears to say he's going to speak to him from the tent of meeting, but yours says he's going to speak to him from above the cherubim. And then his says yes. And his says yes, he did. Speak to him from the tent of meeting, specifically from. Yeah, exactly right. Yes. Are you using this to demonstrate the, that it's specifically in the tent of meeting and then, and then like further, more specific above mercy seat? Because if you read the beginning line of pretty much everything after Mount Sinai, the beginning of every you know, portion, you got invited there on a night, almost shade like more, you know, it's like. Yeah, and God spoke to Moses, telling him, you know, speak to the children of Israel, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we've also got the instance where God called to Noah from within the ark. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm kind of missing where you're going. I'll give you another example. I am not saying what you're saying. I missed it. How did we reconcile these? Because exactly. they, Number 789 says both of them. It puts them both together. He's going to speak to him from within the tent of meeting, from... Between the cherubim. That's exactly what he said. So it's saying that it, it is in the tent of well, There's no question that both are absolutely true. But it's reconciled by getting the analogy from the other passage. Exactly. Let me give you another example. See if we got it. Um, Exodus 19.20 says that Hashem came down upon Mount Sinai. But this seems to, seems to, like the other one, disagree with Deuteronomy 4.36 that says out of heaven he lets you hear his voice. They seem to disagree. Was he out of heaven or was it upon Mount Sinai? Was he out of heaven or was he on top of Mount Sinai? So actually that's what Exodus 20 verse 19 says. We reconcile them because it tells us that God brought the heavens down to the mount and spoke. Okay, which is actually um, in the Mishnah in Sifra 1 7. So, um, you know, the, the concept here is that um, we're, we're going to be drawing analogies from a couple of different passages to reconcile what appear to be uh, apparent contradictions. Yeah, that's, that is exactly, that's exactly what six is for. S- number six is to fix that kind of stuff. How do you deal with that? Well, he, you're right. It, it, it appears to be contradictory, but we know it can't be. So the scripture's got to give us a way of reconciling it, and that's what he's saying, is that you should be able to find in the scripture analogies from other passages that will reconcile it. That's what he's trying to teach us. Uh, yeah. Um, here's a good example. Um, Havachuk says that the just shall live by faith. Right? And yet the Psalms say in 14 and 53, also in Ecclesiastes 7, that there's no one righteous. No, not one. So how can the, how can the just live by faith? I mean, it's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't match, right? Um, but if you look in Psalm 62 and Proverbs 24, you can get analogies from other passages that make it clear that with a relationship, you then can walk in this way and you can be pleasing to God and you can have righteous deeds and he does reward those righteous deeds. So we're talking about two different groups of people, evidently, or two, two different times in their lives, perhaps. Okay? So does it make sense? Again, we're not trying to uh, come up with something fancy here. It's, it's just the whole idea is Hillel sat down and wrote down these seven rules that the scriptures use, not him. That the scriptures use. Okay? And the last one, I have no example for, you should be able to get it. Um, 
I didn't spell that right, did I? Explanation from the text. The context is king, as we say. The, the idea that the text will explain itself in the context. This is like Precisely, Johnny. When, when they say, well, see, yeah, this, this whole food thing was done away with. Didn't you read Acts 10? And you look back and go, I did read Acts 10. Evidently, evidently you didn't. This doesn't, it's not talking about food. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, did, did Peter eat anything in that sheet? Yeah. So explanation from the text. And you see devar or words here in the Hebrew, right? And then um, <clears throat> it's explained. So the words do the uh, explaining, right? All right, so how much more? Equal expression, building a family from one, building a family from many, general in particular, analogy from the passage, and an explanation from the text. Hillel is teaching us that we can learn from the Scripture by using the Scripture. And indeed, the writers of the Scripture, led by the Holy Spirit, use these rules in order to bring consistency. Okay? So if you were to leave here tonight, you may not know these seven rules, but you should know that there is one rule that keeps the Torah relevant in our day. Rule number four. Right? And of course, it's fitting that there would be seven rules. How, how is it that that keeps it relevant? Because you can, you can compare and build a family. That's, that's the whole thing with the ox, right? That you can see the relevance in our day as you apply these passages across the board. Your well, your ox still is is going to be something else. I mean, specifically in this sense, you bet. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly right. Pulling the prince. Pulling the princes up. Yep. Yep. That's what that is. So I think so, I think Paul's deal in the ox is the best make one. Just a sticky note with all of those and put it in your Bible as you read and you'll be exposing yourself to them and you'll be looking to be able to, to say, oh, that looks kind of general, but I remember this and blah, blah, blah. You can, if you've got it right there next to you, you yeah. can you'll start to pick up on them. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to know those um, because if someone's telling you that the scriptures say something, or teach something. Not say, but teach something. You should be able to use these rules to demonstrate, at least fairly quickly, whether it can be possible or not. Right? So, good. Good, 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 good. All right, so um, let's make sure that we're clear on our, our timing. Right? Um, blessed you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commands us to count the Omer. Today is day 11 of the Omer, which is one week and four days. Um, We are waiting for seven sevens. This is the same phrasing, if you will, that Daniel had. Seven sevens. The context teaches us that it couldn't be days like it is in this. But it is actually from the context, number seven, it has to be years or uh, millennia or whatever the case might be. And so you can check that out. So anyway. And if you're ready to get a haircut, wait about three weeks. That's right. That's right. So um, from Passover until Rosh Hashanah, each week, we read one chapter from the six chapters of the Pirkei Avot. When we get done with the sixth, we go back and start reading the first one again. And we'll just rotate through those until we get to Rosh Hashanah. So that's, that's what's coming up um, on our Shabbatot, on our Sabbaths. The next thing coming up on the, on the calendar would be the 33rd day 
of the Omer, which is Lag Ba Omer, uh, which actually means 33. And uh, that, uh, that's, the, the, that's not commemorating the, the death, right? Because it's the non, it's the high point, not the low point. That's the day when all bets are off. We're sort of in a, some, of the, some of the more um, current uh, Orthodox folks are sort of in a mourning period now, and that's why they're not cutting their no, hair is, and stuff. It is a big sad, though, because Lagomer is the day. That they all died? 24,000? I thought 24,000 of Akiva's well, well, students died. No, it's a really special guy. No, it's Shimon Bar-Yochai. Bar-Yochai died on that. Okay. But that was added later, I thought. Well, he was one of the guys in the class. He was, I thought. I thought all 24,000 died on the same day. They, they, they did. I think it's both. It's, Is it? Yeah. I mean, there's time between them. But they At any rate, there's... There's a bunch of stuff going on here, but the 33rd day is where um, all bets are off. You cut your hair, you can get married, there throw is, a party. There is actually uh, a theory that Lagomer is the day that the Jews are Okay. Right. We don't currently. Correct. Then, is 40 days from uh, Lamb Selection Day. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, and so, there is a theory that the Master ascended on the 33rd. Day. In other words, he, he died, or you know, was resurrected, and then he was seen with his disciples and by many, many others. Over 500. For a period of days after his resurrection, there's a theory that it wasn't until the 33rd day of the Omer that he ascended back into heaven on Mount of Olives. But isn't that miraculous? Uh, I mean, wasn't that whole special 33rd thing only when that big death happened? Well, but that's the... I am saying, but that's, that's presuming that there's not something special about that day to begin with. So that God, God would know. God would know. God would know. That's just a theory. It's just a theory. All right. So, bottom line is, we've got, we're counting the Omer, we're commanded to count the Omer, just as we're commanded not to eat shrimp. So, we're going to count the Omer, we're going to say the blessing, um, and we're waiting for Shavuot. So, we just went through a meal with no leaven, we went through a week with no leaven, and we come to a time where we are commanded to have the leaven, the two loaves, there's some cool imagery there. We'll talk about that as we get to it. After Shavuot, we have strictly the Pirkei Avot until we get to the beginning of Elul, the last month of the year, or uh, the last month of the calendar year, the sixth month of the uh, religious calendar. And uh, we'll be blowing the shofar every day of Elul to warn ourselves and our neighbors who love it, by the way, um, that judgment is coming. We'll blow the shofar every day except Shabbat and the very last day so that it sets off the day of blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah or more biblically, Yom Teruah. So that's the, t- the season we're in from Pesach to Rosh Hashanah. All right, questions? Final comments? They do. And in fact, last week is when they changed. Um, and we'll, we'll be looking now for, uh, I think, Elul, we start getting some stuff. Shavuot, we'll have a gray box to do. Um, and certainly when Rosh Hashanah hits, I mean, it's all bets are off. You can't fly through it. You've got to read the fine print. Or you have to pray twice, once to yourself 
to figure out what you're going to do. And then after that, if, I mean, if you have to lead the prayers, you just need to have your act together. So anybody who wants to practice can, can take over whatever you want. All right? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's close here in prayer. Greg, would you close us, please? Amen. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, men.